welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I am your host, Christopher Funderberg. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, John Cribbs. How are you doing tonight, John? Doing well, Chris. How about yourself? Uh, I'm a little under the weather for reasons we just discussed off the air. <laughs> for reasons we, this, uh, this play Misty for me situation is really sapping my strength. Um. Today, you know, this is a strange episode we're doing, and I think it deserves a little bit of a more of a preamble about how we decided to do this and why. Um, we do, obviously, we do alternating. We do a film episode, then a book episode, back and forth. We had selected uh, Carol Joyce Oates' Mysteries of Winterthurn for this episode, and it's great. It's fantastic. Uh, John and I were both reading it and it's incredibly long and we realized we were going to run out of time. The way we structure and record these episodes, just to put you in the sausage factory a little bit, is we have about a week, maybe a week and a half to read each book that we do for it. In most cases, this is more than enough time. Um, even though I am a very slow reader and, and a reader who goes back over things a lot and, and takes my time with books, this is generally enough time that we have for whatever we're going to record. This book was just, it was too big for us. It was too long. And we're going to finish it and return to it at some point. But in the meantime, we said, well, we have this recording scheduled. What are we going to do instead? And John, you had the suggestion of why don't we each pick a short story to talk about? Because you and I are both um, big fans of the short story format. And it's something that doesn't get talked a lot about, you know, all almost all short form stuff, whether it's short films or um, short uh, short stories or whatever it is don't get discussed critically to the extent that more long form stuff does and so we're always looking for opportunities to kind of talk about short things to talk about short story collections to talk about things we like in that context um and i liked the idea because we had run out of time we essentially had like a couple days to do something so we couldn't switch books. So we just needed, we needed to do something short, but also to just give uh, a little more breath and room to, um, to a short story, to an individual short story, which is something we've never done. Now, what's, what was the next phase and how we decided on these two short stories, John? Yeah, well, first, let me just say, I agree that, you know, no one talks about short stories enough. And there's so much fun to talk about. We've done an episode on Rampo short stories. We did one on a Highsmith collection with Wendy Mays. I really had a lot of fun with both of those episodes. It was just fun yeah. to dig into the short form and you can talk about them forever. That's the other thing. Like you can talk about them as long as you talk about a full length novel because they have so many huge ideas in, you know, just a short amount of time. So I thought it was a good idea. Uh, but we, what, which short story to pick, of course, was the question. And we kind of decided, well, since the whole sort of idea for the podcast originally, when we're talking about books, was kind of to do genre-based books and stories, we kind of thought, well, let's think of a theme that could be, you know, sort of a pulpy sort of thing that's sort of a more genre-based thing. We thought maybe we'd do a Western short story specifically or a horror short story, something like that. And what we finally ended up with was let's pick a war story to do. Just that's it. Like, you know, no, no confines beyond that. Just And, and what I was picturing story. is, well, each pick something like two-fisted, you know, 
uh, you know, how Nick Fury is howling commandos, but in a short story form, right? I sort of envisioned it being very genre, but with our limited amount of time, uh, I don't know that kind of stories. Part of what was appealing about it was, <laughs> yeah, was like, exactly. oh, that's not something I know a huge amount about. It turned out with only a couple of days, I really don't know enough about it to just pull one out of thin air to talk about for an hour. Me neither. I was immediately thinking about like, you know, war comic books and the, you know, uh, the old DC, uh, oh man, what's his name? The old DC Joe Kubert books and the, um, you know, EC comics when they would do oh, I know. I just got, tales and things I like that. I just got uh, Parker, my son, the big um, uh, EC comics collection, the big hardcover that has like, you know, 700 oh, pages. And yeah. there's so the many, yeah, there's so many war stories in that one. And I'm only familiar with the Tales from the Crypt. And, and Vault of Terror stuff. I hadn't read any of the like, I don't even know what they're called. They're all Johnny Reb in my mind, you know? <laughs> yeah, they're just that the, stuff's great. The, the, the Sergeant Rock stuff is great. I love all that stuff. And I just figured there must be like a ton of war short stories in like, you know, that were published in pulp magazines and whatnot. As you said, sort of the, you know, kind of gung-ho, completely unabashed adventure war stories. And I- Just about guys diving at the enemy with dynamite. <laughs> You know? Yeah, yeah. It tells the story of Guadalcanal or whatever, you know, but I I immediately after thinking that I tried to actually think of any and could not come up with one writer even, you know, who tells who writes war stories other than I guess, you know, some Civil War short story writers who are kind of, you know, more literary, I guess, than, you know, the kind of things that we were thinking about. So, uh, so both our picks, I think, ended up reflecting our inability to think of something that was kind of a pure pulp sort of story although i it was also my, my well, selection's yeah. a little bit closer to it but yeah go ahead yes it was it was also the matter of we don't have a ton of time to do research we have to pick something we know inside and out really well and that's how we came about it and so the two stories we've we've picked are as i picked Atala calvino's uh the crow comes last and i picked harlan ellison's story soldier from 1957 so and, I did kind of end up picking a genre-based thing because obviously it's a sci-fi war story, time travel and all the good stuff. So they could consider this one sort of what we were talking about, but obviously not exactly what we were thinking when we came up with the idea. Yes, but yours is definitely closer than mine. Italo Calvino, who aren't familiar with him, are, are, is a... Uh, he generally kind of gets lumped in with the magical realists like Marquez and Fuentes. Um, he's, he's, I think, a bit more, uh, you know, he's a traditional postmodernist, he gets called, you know, but he belongs to that tradition of modernist literature, a very uh, formally inventive and playful uh, literature uh, that really is, is constantly trying to, to push boundaries and form. And I always you know, thought of him as the the greatest 20th century allegorical fabulist, you know? Yeah. Yes. He's that kind of writer where every description of him is going to sound overblown, but the stories themselves are, are charming and accessible. I would say in a, in a general way, even as they're, they're quite dark and, and macabre, like the one we're going to discuss tonight, but you are a huge Harlan Ellison fan. I am a, a huge Italo Calvino fan. So we just went with these two, these two war stories. This is how this is how we arrived at this strange moment on the podcast. And I've got to say, uh, I hadn't read Soldier before. 
I'm really glad I read it. It was a really excellent recommendation. I like how this sort of shook out and very inadvertently, these are really fascinating stories to place next to each other, I think. I think that this actually makes for a surprisingly good double feature, don't you? Yeah, they're definitely the two stories that, while they depict war, they don't really have traditional battle scenes in them. They're very much based on individuals and individual soldiers. And they really ask, what what the hell are we doing in war anyway? I mean, literally what it comes down to when they're all the kind of surface things are taken down, it's just, it's people killing people, you know? And that's sort of what nobody kind of wants to admit is that that's what a war is, no matter how justified it is. It's just literally going out and murdering your fellow man, you know? So that's kind of a theme that these two stories kind of share together. Yeah, and they're both very much about the strangeness of war. And if you try to observe it with something like remote objectivity, how, how strange it looks, how, how not animalistic it is, how specifically human and, and uh, unintelligible it is. It's, it's just totally strange act. The act of war, if observed remotely, is bizarre. You know, and I think that that's something that both of these have. Yeah, both told in a very specific kind of storytelling frame. You know, you said, you know, Calvino is very sort of fabulous, even in this early kind of work. And there's a very fairy tale quality to the story, the same way that Hellison obviously uses speculative fiction to tell this story. Um, And more than anything, even Hellison's story even ends literally with a character telling a story uh, that's a war story, you know? Absolutely. So why don't we get into it? Let's go. I think we should go talk about Soldier first and then Crow Comes Last second. Uh, okay. Just because, I don't know, the crow, the crow is about the ending of things to me. So it feels like it <laughs> yeah. makes more sense uh, to do that, to do that second. Um, yeah. So you want to tell everyone the plot of Soldier? Before I do, let me just say uh, Soldier, again, it was 1957. So it's very early Ellison story. At the time, he was very much, you know, kind of doing traditional science fiction where there were morals and, you know, lessons to be learned and take a look at our current society and the way things are. So Soldier does have that kind of dated feel to it, Uh, but it's very noteworthy, though, for predating books like Starship Troopers and The Forever War, military science fiction that would become, you know, huge in the second half of the 20th century. And so it definitely predates that. It's huge influence on uh, things that, you know, um, stories in general that would come, you know, from telling telling war stories from a soldier's point of view in like the science fiction field. But the plot is, Quarlo Klobregni is a soldier from thousands of years nurse future, what's referred to as K-79. And he is fighting the Great War 7 in what is a uh, uh, desiccated uh, radioactive landscape where sunlight barely pierces the scorched sky where life is just brain burning and spore death, basically. Uh, it's The war is being fought constantly. It seems to be all the population of this future is doing is being engaged in this war, which is fought with uh, telepathy and, and pyro t- telepathy and all kinds of horrible, horrible weapons. Uh, and he's been conditioned by from birth by the state uh, to fight for the tri-continenters, solely to fight and kill the enemy, the Rusky Chinks. 
and a crisscross of future lasers ends up sending him back in time to our time and he materializes at a subway station most likely new york based on the accents and after blasting a train with his future weapon he gets knocked out and arrested and he then becomes the concern of this group of uh agents and uh, scientists and a uh, philologist who have to figure out after they've determined that he is in fact a soldier from the future a future that is you know horribly played with combat and and, and death they have to figure out what they're going to do with him because he's just a foot soldier he's not someone who could explain how his fancy uh Meyer weapon works how his, his his liquefying laser or his firmer which is a small molecule hardening instrument that they use to basically create trenches for themselves uh, to get into it can basically turn sand into solid matter uh, or his uh, plastic bandoliers which i assume are something like grenades but anyway he doesn't know how any of this equipment works so it's not like he can tell them all the future technology that you know america can then utilize against its enemies in the cold war uh he's just a guy and so ultimately what they decide to do with him is use him as an instrument to to tell about the future and about the way the way things are headed thousands of years in the future as a way to kind of uh get turn people towards disarmament and and uh and anti-war sentiments that's basically the setup um yes and it's it's very interesting we've just might as well go through the whole story, right? Do we need to 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 spoil it or spoilers or? I, that's I, pretty much the story, but yeah, so we can talk about the individual things. Yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, our it's most interesting in its depiction of Corlo, who speaks in a something in a, in a dialect that nobody can understand, but then they figure out again. They hire this uh, uh, philologist named Soames, who figures out that he's speaking just like a broken version of English where the words are just kind of meshed together and that he figures out he can actually separate them and communicate with this guy. And that's how they figure out who he is, but his reflections of the modern, you know, our, the, our contemporary society, how he thinks of our present as not the war and recognizes it's not a place where anyone he sees, he blasts them right away and sort of his conditioning that you kind of think, you know, and, and they worry about the characters worry about in the story that if he's a soldier, he's just going to seek combat and seek destruction. He actually hates it. Even though yeah. it's all he's ever known, he actually hates doing what he does and recognizes the use, the complete uselessness of all this death and destruction. And so when he is in our time, he actually fits in really well because he more than anyone understands this is something he does not want to go back to. And this is preferable society to where he comes from. Yeah. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting story too, for me, because it's so unpredictable. It's very jumpy for a short story, you know, is it, it's kind of uh, constantly switching perspective and where we're located within the story and who the main character seems to be. It pops around with that very, very fast. And it's brief. It's probably like 20 pages long. It's not a, a super long, short story. And that's one of the things that you read it and you absolutely cannot guess where it's going. It's one of those stories that each little individual break in it, there's sort of uh, many chapters within it. Uh, at each one of those pseudo chapter breaks, it jumps to a totally different place within it. It, it jumps to a different perspective, different mindset even. And each time it jumps, it's, it's virtually impossible to guess where you're going to end up after that jump and what's going to happen after it. 
Uh, and that's one of the things that's that's pretty remarkable about it. Um, Ellison is one of your favorite writers. Is this one of the ones you read early on to get into him? Or do, at what point in the process of loving Ellison did you come to this story? This one I came to only after I saw the Outer Limits adaptation that he did several years later. He wrote two Outer Limits episodes, this one and a, one of his best stories, I think, called um, Demon with a Glass Hand. So I saw the episode first and only came to the story later, which was interesting because the episode is very different. He, um, you know, to kind of, you know, put more action in it, he actually sends two soldiers into our modern time, uh, Quarlo and then an enemy soldier ends up showing up near the end. So it becomes a lot more about, you know, there's sort of a ticking clock factor where, you know, this other soldier, enemy soldier is coming to kill him. And uh, the ending wall has sort of the same anti-war sentiment is a lot more, uh, they, they, they throw in this question of, well, when he stands up against this soldier, is that because that's his instinct because war is in his blood and it's this just inherent human thing that he feels from where he comes from that he has to murder this guy or is he actually defending this family that he has come to know and love? And obviously all that stuff is not in the story. The story really is just concentrated, as you said, sort of on him and his kind of complete displacement in the society and getting used to the fact that he doesn't have access to these instruments that are all he knows about, you know, how to live and how to, you know, go out there and, and be a soldier. And then it kind of shifts over to our scientists and our agents and our uh, speech, speech expert and how they are now going to deal with this uh, soldier from the future and what it means sort of for their place in the world. Demon with a glass hand is a really cool idea. It's given me some of my own ideas for a movie. Like maybe I could sort of do my own twist on Demon with a glass hand, <laughs> make my own own sort of movie idea out of it. That's I bet I can get away with that and never get in trouble, right? If I did that. <laughs> well, I would recommend that you combine it somehow with Soldier and see if, you know, something good comes out of that. <laughs> Uh, as, as, as a certain director might, may or may not have done. This is going to be the second time on our podcast, by the way, that we are accusing James Cameron <laughs> indirectly of, of ripping off a great science fiction writer. <laughs> didn't, didn't, didn't he actually lose? Didn't he get sued and lose over Demon with a Glass Hand? I thought he actually lost that lawsuit. I thought that was not a matter of, um, of uh, speculation and insinuation on our part. James Cameron with Terminator borrowed huge parts of the tone and logic of of these of these things we're discussing it's sort of if if soldier and demon of the glass hand are most famous they are most famous for cameron repurposing them for terminator exactly yeah it's yeah i mean the, he did win a lawsuit against the producers but cameron has since said you know oh i didn't agree with that you know they basically said you know if you don't go along with this and we lose you're going to have to, you know, incur all the penalties or whatever, like he was going to like suffer. So he was like, fine, I don't care. Just go ahead and give him the credit at the end of the, the movie. So, you know, in, the, in terms of that, it's and, controversial, but yeah. he did, he was quoted though in Starlog or something as saying, Oh, for Terminator, I just ripped off a couple of Harlan Ellison Lemon episodes. So he basically confessed to it on his own before any of this even happened. Yeah. And that stuff, that stuff, I always feel like, gets overblown like on on the website i'm working on a piece on plagiarism right now it, because i'm really interested in how it functions in terms of the difference between 
inspiration and ripoff between homage and and theft and you know there's all kinds of quotes about that sort of thing and and you know sort of clever glib ideas but i do think the the process of inspiration and artistic influence is a little mysterious and it's sometimes portrayed as a plagiarist is someone who has no ideas of their own who just steals stuff rampantly. And I think it's more complicated than that. I think that there's a lot of really spectacularly original artists uh, who have lost plagiarism lawsuits like James Cameron and Fassbender and uh, Dorothy Parker. Um, and I think that it's it's a fascinating subject to me because I do think it's, it's hard to um, draw a clear line when something like Todd Haynes you know, who's very, very influenced by uh, other filmmakers and wears those influences very directly, uh, like something like Far From Heaven. I can't even remember which title is which. If the Cirque film is Far From Heaven or All That Heaven Allows or the Todd Haynes film is, uh, you know, Far From Heaven or All That Heaven Allows. And it, and it really is a, a very um, assiduous and thoughtful and loving and intelligent plagiarism of a few Cirque films. There's there's not a great, if Demon with a Glass Hand is plagiarized by Terminator, then what Todd Haynes is doing is plagiarizing Imitation of Life and All That Heaven Allows, you know? Right, right, and I, where you draw the line between plagiarism and homage, right? Or just, or just artistic influences. And I yeah. think it in no way diminishes what Haynes accomplishes with his movies to say that. I think that the line in the getting drawn, something gets accused of plagiarism as a way of diminishing it and something it gets accused of, uh, of just being an homage when you don't want to diminish it, you know? And I think that those lines are, are harder to draw than they're made out to be. Basically, I think you can get away with it if you're Fassbender and there's a sort of intellectual, academic, critical establishment on your side. And you can't get away with it if you're James Cameron, you know, and people yeah. are looking to take you down and you don't have an academic uh, apparatus behind you uh, and sort of intellectual critical apparatus behind you to try and protect you from it. You know, I think is a lot of the times all that there is to it. I mean, the Dorothy Parker one where she read Lolita before it was published and then published her very shameless ripoff of it, a short story before the book was published is, is unconscionable, but it does not seem to have affected her reputation in any way. You know, it's sort of, it's sort of jaw dropping what, what she did when you actually compare the materials and her process of literally stealing it before it was published. It's, it's very shocking in that way. But I think that nobody's going to come after Dorothy Parker because nobody wants to take Dorothy Parker down because there's a critical apparatus that, that basically the only structures uh, existing around Dorothy Parker's reputation at this point. Absolutely. And I think with Cameron and with Terminator, you can see if you compare it to Soldier and Dean with a Glass Hand, that it's clearly an influence more than a plagiarism. You know, yeah. that he, saw, he read it, he saw those and thought, I can build on that and, and do something different, completely different yeah. on my own. And you know, it's a springboard. I, I think that there are things that actually owe a lot more to Soldier than Terminator. Escaping the Planet of the Apes, for example, is basically yeah. the exact same story, except with apes instead of a soldier. Or Paul W.S. Anderson's movie, which is called Soldier. 
And yeah. it's about Kurt Russell, you know, uh, being, you know, from birth brought up to become this uh, thoughtless kill, killing machine. And a lot uh, and less doesn't even known. wear a cape in it. I, I don't believe... remember if he has a cape. I, not, I, but... I'm pretty sure he has a cape in it. Definitely has on. a few skin tight suits. That's for sure. <laughs> and lesser known than uh, Terminator is uh, an issue of The Incredible Hulk written by Bill Mantlo, which ripped off Soldier Wholesale in a story called Hero. And based on that, Ellison demanded an apology, demanded the same amount of money that Mantlo got to write the issue and a lifetime subscription to everything Marvel published thereafter. And they granted him all three. It's, it's funny too. We we're, you know, Harlan Ellison is, uh, I think also he's extremely litigious. He's notorious litigly litigious and constantly accuses everybody of ripping him off is another thing to remember about this author. And he's somebody, I really admire his work. I like his work a lot. He's a more than faintly ridiculous human being. He's very much a a real life Garth Meringue of dark place, but with less self-awareness is how I would describe him. It's sort of, it's, it's, they toned him down a bit to make that show (laughs) is how I would describe it. Yeah, once he got past his uh, dating, creepy dating game uh, contestant persona of the 70s, you know, where he had like the <laughs> the open shirt and the necklace and whatnot, you know, once he got into the 90s and, you know, kind of become like, you know, kind of a more sober old man, a veteran writer, I think he got like a lot more tolerable. But I, I think he got dicked over a lot, you know, when he was yeah. young. I think, you know, he got screwed over by publishers and agents and all kinds of people and other writers. And so he just, you know, was someone who was super defensive about it. I remember when uh, that now completely forgotten movie, In Time, came out, the Justin uh, Timberlake movie. Uh, I I just watched that this summer. you got to be kidding. Wow. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Parker requested to watch it for some reason. It was on like Netflix or HBO Max or something. And he that's that was his pick one day. Anyway. (laughs) Uh, Well, Ellison. And even and even now. When you said in time, I was like, what the fuck is in time? Until you started describing it. <laughs> uh, Ellison immediately set up a lawsuit against that movie right like before it even came out. Just hearing the plot, he said, that sounds like my story. Repent, Harlequin said the TikTok man. And after he saw it, he dropped the suit because he was like, oh, this movie's a piece. This is a dumb piece of shit that has nothing to do with my story after all. So he was ready to sue the movie even before seeing it. Sight <laughs> unseen. Yeah. He's definitely a figure too, who, if you're not familiar with them, he, he represents that first kind of embattled, embittered fanboy culture. He's sort of like, he's not the genesis of it. That's unfair to put that on him, but he's definitely one of the early archetypes of that big nerd who is a know-it-all, who's also angry at everybody and nothing is good enough for him, you know, and that everything is dumb and he would have done it better and everything's a ripoff of something else. It's a very specific kind of fanboy nerd that he belongs to. And I think, again, none of this diminishes his work. I first became familiar with him in high school. My dad gave me a few sci-fi novel street my dad is a big uh, sci-fi fan and we've talked about he actually did an episode with us where we talked about the moat in god's eye and another one was heinlein's book of job and then um ellison's i have no mouth but i must scream right and those those were three of the really when you read them at 15 or 16 they're of course very very formative and i think that ellison needs to be given 
um, Full Space as one of the important sci-fi writers. And what I was struck by reading Soldier this time is he, it changes constantly, but he also knows how to give an audience what it wants. When he sets up a story, he pursues the most overtly interesting avenues and implications of it, even if it leads away from standard narrative rails, which is something that I really appreciate about him, is he he knows what an audience is thinking when they read this and what's exciting to them about it, and he follows it and doesn't worry about squeezing it into a standard, you know, five act format, you know, hit these kind of notes. He, he drops all of that and he goes to wherever his stories are interesting, which is a really, um, it's always exciting when a writer does that, when a writer gives you what you want out of a story without being pandering and without being generic or formulaic, it's, it's always really exciting to read. And I do think he's earned a bit of that attitude of, I would have done it better. He's also, you know, wholly a short story writer. I mean, he does not have any, you know, big novels, you know, big science fiction novels everyone looks to. He was all about the short stories. And with Soldier specifically, I think what's so interesting about it is that it's so horribly pessimistic about this future where there's this, you know, he uses such horrible descriptions of war and, and uh, uses gore and, and graphic, you know, violence and things like that. But the story itself is crazily optimistic for a science fiction story that a guy like this could show up in our times and that he wouldn't, you know, they thought wouldn't be, oh, we can use this guy against Russia. You know, we can, you know, uh, milk this guy for, you know, future intel on the best way to kill people that ultimately they want to use him as, you know, a service for peace is a very optimistic kind of take and an unexpected one too. Yes, Yes. And the way it impacts the characters, again, of it creates in those characters a remote observation of what war is like and makes even the military men horrified of as uh, our scientific knowledge expands of the just the horrifying implications of how dystopian, fully dystopian existence will be if we don't get this under control. And I think that it's also interesting, you read it as, as, a, a, as, as a reader, to read into it very obvious moral parable of, oh, well, this is Vietnam, that we're already there, we're already doing horrifying things with our technology, with the A-bombs and the firebombs of Tokyo and Vietnam. And if we're standing outside of it, we'll see we're already in that nightmare future. And it sort of kicks even into the military men's mind. Uh, of, oh, this is what it's like as technology advances, the, the machinations of death become just unimaginably dystopian. If you can just observe it with some remoteness and some objectivity, if you can put some space between what is and what seems to be. And the idea too, that human evolution up to that point, that we would come to a point where there, there are telepaths and you know ways of you know, uh, manipulating our minds in different ways could only be used for destruction is, you know, kind of an amazing thing of like taking like what could be beautiful about the future could be completely perverted and corrupted by that time. The things yeah. that we look for as human advancements and, you know, in our biology and in science, I mean, would to only me, turn into weapons against each other. Yeah. To me, firm holes sound beautiful. I love the sound <laughs> of a firm hole and they turn it like into something disgusting in the book. 
Do you like the line? He fingered an edge of the firm hole. <laughs> it is one of those things too, where um, he's like a solid writer. He's not like a, uh, this is something I've talked about before on the site where you have the generation of writers roughly contemporaneous to him, probably a little before him of like Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury, right? And those guys' job as science fiction writers was just to be good, solid standard writing, to just do sci-fi writing that wasn't a total paid by the word schlock embarrassment, right? Sure. And that's a really important role to play. And it, and it gets sci-fi into the realm of real literature and opens up the possibilities of literature. And they play a really crucial role in that by just being like really average, non-embarrassing writers, you know? Yeah. Harlan Ellison, uh, I think, is not that kind of a writer. He sort of brings the messiness of early sci-fi into the post-Asimov era, is how I always think of him. Oh, it's for sure. And as he was, you know, developing into the 60s and 70s, I think of him more in the new, you know, kind of bracket of science fiction writers like Ballard and the other writers, Moorcock, who were, you know, all anthologized in his Dangerous Visions books. You know, he's someone who really change the prose around to be you know more like dark fableism i think than actually you know old old school sci-fi and robots and aliens and things like that yeah that he's a very he's a very raw writer and he he i feel like he chases after ideas which is one of the things i like about him a lot is that he mm -hmm. doesn't even he doesn't chase after descriptions or poetry or stories is that he really runs after ideas which i think a lot of the very best the very best sci-fi, I think that's the nature of sci-fi. I think that's the nature of the genres to chase after exciting ideas in some way. And he's he definitely embodies that, that attitude of chasing after interesting ideas, uh, I think. I'm certainly not an expert on him. What's, what's, is this your favorite, Ellison, or is there something that you rate even higher than it? Not by a long shot. I like the story a lot, but uh, I, again, it's definitely feels a little bit early a little bit you know creaky and some some of the descriptions and things like that very 50s i mean you know you have sort of the uh the generic you know you got a light bulb kind of you know characters you know kind of just yeah. stock characters in there and just depictions of snuggy like skin tight suits and whatnot that guy's got a screw loose exactly <laughs> um so i think you get further away from that and his books from the 70s like uh, death bird stories and things like that uh shatter day are my favorite of his stuff, you know, and he really, and then he, and then going into the eighties too, he wrote some really beautiful stories and uh, collections like angry candy is one of my very favorite short story collections. So this is still kind of, you know, him kind of feeling out the field again, having a great idea, which again, precursed, you know, a lot of uh, huge science fiction stories that would come, but I think he's still sort of very much working in that genre where he hasn't really become quite the Ellison that he's going to become later on. Yeah, I also love how he deals with time travel and time travel paradoxes by the only good answer to time travel and time travel paradoxes and how does this work is who gives a shit he traveled through time, forget it. You know, like he doesn't, <laughs> what will his impact be on the future wars that he's left? It's like, shut up, forget it. You know, like he was yeah. there, now he's here, that's it move on you know like <laughs> there's not actually anything clever about getting really wrapped up in that stuff it's just really like oh but i love getting wrapped up in that stuff i've told you before i want to have murray funderburg on to talk about science fiction time travel stories sometime 
we should do it. He'd definitely be up for that. He's he's like he he loves doing the podcast. I think do do you want to switch? Do you just want to do this show with my dad instead of me <laughs> for a year? See how it turns out. I feel like it might might improve by subtraction alone. Um yeah. Yeah, I do. I do appreciate it. You know what it reminded me of this time as I was reading it was like, so is this like a free Jack situation? Is that what we got here? (laughs) Did somebody just put before his car crashes, just pulled him out? We got a a free Jack. But again, when I think from the grave, Elson just heard the name, the word free Jack was like, (laughs) did I not sue that production company? That's what I'm saying is his ideas are all they're what an audience wants. So they're super sci-fi ideas. You know what I mean? And that they're just, they're just perfect sci-fi ideas. So I think that's why he's constantly like, they ripped off my idea is because if you sit down and you come up with a cool sci-fi idea and you try and give an audience what you want, chances are Ellison already went through that process with your idea, you know, and Definitely. sort of work something out. Although I do, I agree with you 100%. If you read this and, and watch The Outer Limits and then watch Terminator, you will be like, what the fuck? Like that he got, he lost that lawsuit, you know, kind of thing. You will just, <laughs> yeah. you will you will not even put one and one. It's like one and one equals three with that. It just, it, <laughs> you can, you can kind of, it's, I think it's what, like Cameron said, like I ripped off some old Outer Limits episodes, like, I thought about doing something like that and did my own version of it more than right. He didn't sit. He didn't sit there and write like copy the dialogue, you know, and the character names and all that kind of stuff. He didn't steal the galleys and change like two words of the character names for like fucking Dorothy Parker did. Yeah, there's a reason that he didn't get um, that Harlan didn't get a lifetime subscription to every movie Universal made, you know, after or Fox made <laughs> out of the lawsuit. He just got a credit on it. But before we go on, Elson, I just want to say, you know, uh, of course, he passed away a few years ago, which was you know, rough uh, for me, you know, when he died. Uh, but even more so, I hadn't realized because it wasn't highly publicized. His wife, Susan, who he, Elson was married five times and Susan was his, his last wife. And she was the only one he was with for any kind of length of time. But it was many, many years. And, uh, you know, was his real soulmate. And he, you know what he said to her, right? What? The, the others were only my wives, but you will be my widow. Nah, this was nah, true. I'm, just, I'm just kidding. That's a Sasha Gitchery line. That's what he said to his fifth wife. Sorry, go on. Wow, that's yeah, it was his fifth wife. Um, but anyway, it wasn't highly publicized, but she passed away uh very shortly after he did, which was really tragic. She was much younger than than he was, uh, only in her 60s, I think, when she passed away. Uh it broke that broke my heart even more. He wrote this beautiful story for her called Susan, which if you haven't read it, I would say go seek it out. It makes me fucking cry man it's so such a beautiful tribute to his wife and the last lines of it will just like break you up you know like it, it just is it's such a perfect description of like finding the right person after being you know having so many years of being like alone or with the wrong uh significant other you know to actually find someone who you were meant to be with this story encapsulates that so beautifully so if you ever feel like crying so it's so it's a ludicrous fairy tale no i'm just kidding <laughs> not for some people thunderbird it could happen <laughs> it could happen to you i'm telling you i'll believe it when i see it no i'm just kidding <laughs> the world is full of beauty and love and i actually enjoy i actually enjoy existing in all of those things my bitter cynical attitude is is purely a put on for <laughs> to protect my all too fragile and sentimental heart. Um, 
so the next one we're talking about, and it's an interesting fit, is um is my pick, which is Italo Calvino's The Crow Comes Last. Ultimo viene il culfo. Cricuervo y desecran su ojos. Um and this book is from the, uh, it's not a book, it's a short story. It was there was originally published in a short story collection called The Crow Comes Last, which I believe is 1949. And then it was reprinted in uh, Difficult Loves in 1970, I believe. He's somebody whose stories have uh, been published in multiple versions and, and sort of uh, incomplete versions, books labeled the same thing that have different selections of stories in it. I don't really worry a huge amount about that. Just read Crow Comes Last. It's one of his most famous, too, I think. Although... Um, and the plot of this story, which is very short, I'm not sure how many pages it is. It can't be more than a dozen pages. And it is about a, uh, there are some soldiers up by a pond in the mountains and they're trying to decide how to get some fish out of a pond and they're gonna throw a grenade in and a boy, he's just described as a boy, we don't know how old he is, takes one of their rifles and points it at one of the trout in the water right as it's about to surface and shoots it and hits it, right? And this boy, anything he points this gun at, he can hit. He's an expert shot. He points at a uh, at a, uh, an eagle flying by and shoots it. Points at pine cones, hit them far away. And it's a, a ruminative story. So there's a lot of discussion about how the boy thinks about how strange it seems that there should be a distance between where I am and what I'm looking at. How strange it should be that I can point this gun and eliminate that space just by pulling the trigger that suddenly there and here get joined together, right? And we realize uh, as the story goes on uh, that these are uh, Italian partisans of some kind, pr presumably one of the, the communist partisan brigades uh, in which Calvino himself fought during World War II. Um, and he's conscripted, essentially. The, the soldiers say, hey, we'll give you a rifle if you join our group, because he's just that good of a shot. But when they take him out, he won't stop shooting at things, even as they're getting ready to pass towards enemy territory. He's shooting mushrooms and a snail, which leaves behind nothing but a splintered rock and iridescent slime, right? There's so many great phrases in this story. And so they have to take the rifle away from him because he's just shooting at too many things. And then they lay down to go to sleep at the night. And the boy wakes up at the crack of dawn before everybody else steals a rifle and goes out to essentially just shoot whatever he can see. And it turns out that coming over the hill are some opposing soldiers. You know, the, one of the final lines of the story confirms, of course, that these are Nazis, that these are German soldiers, that soldiers that they've seen. And he starts shooting at them and the, the other soldiers wake up. And in fact, they're like, oh, we would have been killed if this, this boy hadn't gone out and started shooting at everything. And from there, the perspective, it's mainly been uh, in the boy's perspective or with the boy, but he's a very opaque character. He's a very mysterious character. What he wants and why he enjoys shooting at things uh, is very strange, except that he's good at it and he wants the rifle. That's basically his only motivation for anything is he likes having the rifle because he's such a good shot and he's able to hit whatever he aims at. Like he aims at a coat button on one of the German soldier's chest and shoots the coat button directly in the middle of his chest, things like that. Crack shot, but it switches to one of the Nazi soldiers, one of the German soldiers. Although it's very importantly, they're not labeled that way. They're labeled just as soldiers, whether it's the opposing soldiers or the 
uh, whether it's the not the German Nazi soldiers or the Italian soldiers, they're just labels as soldiers. There's no differentiation between them. And so this little hunt happens where rather than killing one of the other soldiers, he starts shooting uh, his rifle lock so that his rifle won't shoot. He he uh, he uh, blows the uh, the uh, what's it called the. He shoots the rifle so the rifle won't work. Then he shoots the rifle strap so it falls off. Then he shoots the guy's belt off and shoots, you know, essentially is just falling along behind him and not killing him, but shooting off various hard to shoot things because he can't. And then the soldier ducks down behind a rock and it gets very scared. He has a grenade and he thinks, well, I can throw it at the boy. And then he realizes the boy is shooting every bird that flies by overhead. He's shooting it with one shot and falling down. And the soldier behind the rock is thinking, well, how do I get out of here? Uh, he's shooting at the birds. Let me put on my bayonet, my, my helmet and see how quickly he shoots. He raises it immediately gets shot off. And he makes this plan to when the boy is focusing on one of the birds or pine cones that he's shooting instead of him behind the big rock, he's going to get up and make a run for it. And then a crow comes by slowly circling in the sky and the boy doesn't shoot it, right? The boy doesn't shoot this crow that's coming by. And so the soldier starts to think, am I hallucinating? He shot every other bird in one shot and this crow comes. And he has this idea that, oh, when you're about to die, you see every kind of bird that there is and they all get shot down except for the crow. And the crow comes last and then you know you're gonna die. And so he stands up to warn the boy. He says, watch out, it's a crow to warn him the crow's coming and we're going to die. And the little boy shoots the pin on his chest, the eagle with its spread wings on his chest to kill him, right? Beautiful, mysterious story. I love, this might be my favorite short story of all time. I, I, I really find it's fantastic. Clearly I have lots of little bits and pieces of it memorized it's it's certainly up there it's up there with like uh the hitchhiking game by milan kundera or araby by james joyce is like my very favorite short stories that i really uh think about all the time and it's it is like soldier in that it's about the experience of being a soldier detached from politics and desire and bureaucratic function and nations and nationality it's it's about the essence of what it just means to go out and shoot things, uh, what it means to just go out and kill things. And it's similarly like you're never in the head of Quarlo. You're never really like Quarlo is a very mysterious, opaque figure. You are in his head. Same thing with the boy. And one of the neat narrative tricks I like of the story is how it does slip us into the mind of the of the German soldier right before he's killed at the end and gives him this very strange poetic thought process on top of it, which which only makes everything uh, more mysterious. But it's it's just it's beautifully written. Calvino is obviously a gorgeous writer, just a great, great writer. It moves like a breeze. Um, it just, it's over in a blink. You start reading the story and it's done two seconds later. Had you read it before I, I recommended it? Yeah, I'm also a huge Calvino fan, same as you. So yeah, of course I've read the story. It's so beautiful and terrifying. It was great to revisit it. I've read it three times uh, yeah. yesterday. You know, I mean, you can't, it's such an easy story to just go back and, and just appreciate all the things about it. I, I love that you pointed out that the soldiers are not specifically identified in any way 
until the very end. I mean, divorce of context, you know, obviously us knowing the story are going to realize who these people are. But even when the soldier shouts out, look, look, it's the crow, watch out. It says he shouted, shouts it in his language. It doesn't say he shouts it in German. You just have to understand that, you know, this is a foreign person and that, you know, they aren't from the same country is enough to understand like who he is. And I suppose there is some chance it could be flipped. I don't know. Did the, did the Garibaldi communist partisans have a symbol that was a bird of some kind, an eagle with spread wings? That seems like too much of a coincidence that you're not supposed <laughs> yeah. to read it as a Nazi, but it really goes very far out of its way to not identify who is who. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and what you were saying just about the boy thinking about, I'll quote it, it was, it was strange to get it over to be so surrounded by air to be separated from other things by yards of air and how he's, you know, just wants to fill in the empty distance between other things and himself that he doesn't understand why he should be able to see something and not have a physical, you know, be able to physically touch it. To me, that's the, that's the whole kind of science behind the nuclear bomb, right? How to weaponize the air, like the, how to close in all the distance with encompassing destruction is this kid's mindset in terms of like killing things with his gun Yeah, is, you know, how to take nature and turn it into something that I can use for destruction. This kid you know, is so weirdly connected to nature that it is, makes the whole thing so unsettling and beautiful, but in a beautiful way. Yes. You know, this summer I had a long talk with my dad because my dad is a, is a, a chemical engineer. And I, cause I was like, you know, I, I don't know how nuclear, bombs and atomic bombs actually work. Talk me through the literal process of this, because it does seem crazy that there can be so much energy stored in something of that size. And, and going through and walk, getting talked through the process step-by-step step, very in very clear scientific terms, it is one of those things where it doesn't make more sense. It becomes more fantastical, where you, you go, okay, I get it now, but that's crazier. This, this is crazier that that's what's happening, that there's this thing you can hold in your hands that's like the size of a freaking brick that has so much stored up unstable energy that you can cause it to be that explosive. You know, this thing that just looks like a piece of material, you know, actually has that much potential energy inside of it is crazy. And I agree with you that his connection to nature, the boy's connection to nature is one of the most mysterious things about it is he doesn't seem like an interloper. He, he seems connected to, to nature the way a hunter always does in a fairy tale. You yeah. Know, he knows hunt- when the, he knows when the trouts are going to surface that they say seemingly like he knew already where they were going to come. That's how fast he's shooting them. Like he knows exactly the area that they're going to pop up in. Yeah. Yes. That's also great when the soldiers are like, this kid's a good shot. Right. And they're sort of enjoying it. And then he shoots enough things that one of them says, yeah, this kid's a good shot. No longer laughing. I think is the line where (laughs) they're like, there's some, he's an unnaturally unsettlingly good shot is also a great little moment of transformation there. Um, but he is, he is connected to nature, like a huntsman in a fairy tale, you know, where you don't feel like he's an interloper who's, who's coming in. He's not Quarlo in the subway where he's immediately out of place. He's in his village in his mountain in his valley, and he belongs there. And he's somehow part of it. He's somehow completely natural, but this 
grotesque force of annihilation at the same time, you know, or the annihilation almost gets made natural by him. You know, it's yeah. a very, it's a very strange relationship. Well, his innocence that. obviously is a huge part of what makes him such a mysterious and creepy character. I mean, described as a mountaineer with an apple face, you know, you can see yes. this kid and his obviously white Calvino, and red apple face. It's yeah. a great description. Calvino, you know, wrote a lot of his best work, you know, through the perspective of a child through innocence. I mean, this came out two years after his first novel, The Path to the Nest of Spiders, which is about an orphan cobbler's apprentice who steals a, a pistol from a Nazi and then brings it to yeah. a resistance group. So there's a lot of connection there. Um, but, you know, it's sort of how this kid, you know, relates to the adult characters and the way that he relates is that, like you said, he, there is no cause for him. There is no reason to go out and kill he's basically shooting buttons off uniforms and you know sh shooting insignias things that you know he's not necessarily out to destroy things he's just out there to to touch things you know yeah. it, that just makes it even creepier that he has no he has no reason to want to go out and destroy things it's just this need of his to go out and touch things with his rifle that you know that kind of innocence is just really unsettling but in a, again in a really beautiful i'm gonna say this at the end of everything i say in a beautiful way yeah i also love when he's described they conscript him and he goes to leave his little his little village and it says it was fine to leave because there were new things to be seen at every turn trees with cones birds flying from branches lichen on stones all those false distances the distances that could be filled by a shot swallowing the air in between and it is like that feeling you have of being young and just going for a walk and being like, look at this lichen on a stone, like, look at this plant. It really takes me back to being a kid out in the woods all the time. I was just sent out of the house by my mom and we go spend all day in the woods in, in uh, rural Pennsylvania, farm country, Southern Chester County, Pennsylvania. And that would be what it was, is look at the bark on this tree, look at this strange little uh markings in the mud you know that that is what was interesting combined with some sense of like the shot swallowing the distance of the air in between them those also childishly deep metaphysical concerns of why is the world this way and not that way uh, that that seep out into the natural world around you too in a in a way that's like natural human philosophy you know, th those mm -hmm. sort of philosophical questions that everybody asks naturally that are inexplicable. You know, why are the things that are in my eye not touchable by my hand? You know, is, is something that when you think about it as a kid is deeply strange. You know, that something should be inside of me, but also not be able to be grasped by me in any way mm -hmm. uh, is, is a very strange idea. And then you place it in the context of a war where there's, these machinations going on where this there's these battle happening there's some conflict but it just seems so irrelevant like that there are soldiers on one side and the other seems completely irrelevant to to this kid in the story and the story's perspective and i do like how much it, if you identify with anyone in the story you identify with the german soldier trapped behind the boulder you know yeah, well, and absolutely. Is, and as a communist partisan writing in 1949, <laughs> that's that's a very powerful artistic gesture as well. For sure. And I, well, I mean, the, the bigger picture, obviously, is that this kid and his complete indifference to what he's doing is almost like God, right? 
I mean, yeah. it's like, you know, the indifference of God in a war. What, you know, why, why am I, why are my friends and I being killed and shot at and blown up? Uh, you yeah. know, it's not, you know, that's, that's you guys doing it. It's got nothing to do with me. And it has uh-huh. this kind of, you know, uh, again, you know, his, his kind of being considered part of nature, you know, is yeah. sort of that, that kind of speaks to that sort of incomplete indifference in terms of like this show, this German soldier whose entire attitude is being shot at is, you know, like, wow, why is this happening? Why is he doing this to me? What's happening? What's going on? You're it's in a war, a buddy. What comedic, did you think was going to happen? It's such yeah. a great comedic scene, too. This story is very funny in that way. This yeah, point. when he throws, he finally does throw a grenade and the kid just shoots it right in midair. And That's he has great. to duck out of the way of the shrapnel. Says the shrapnel's coming all showering around him. Yeah. It is. It's a funny story in a lot of ways. It's it's kind of everything. I mean, this story is kind of everything. It really is, isn't it? It, re- yeah. it really is. I, I'm like talking myself into it even more. This was already one of my favorite stories and I'm talking to myself into it even more. It's greatness. Um, yeah, and I just love I I just love the idea of those kind of weird thoughts we have that seem completely real. Like, oh, before you die, you see every bird, and the of course the crow comes last, and here's the crow. I am fucked. This kid is fucked though too. I've got to warn this kid. But just that idea, those crazy poetic thoughts that you have. Uh, at very stressful moments and that you believe fully with your full heart. You know, there's so many poetic, metaphorical, metaphysical things that you suddenly believe with all your heart. Thoughts you have that you suddenly believe are completely true, even when they are detached from reality as that one is. And that's a very human way of relating to reality. It makes that character so Yeah, Yeah, even the logic of, well, why, you know, when it's, he's shooting every single bird, this is absurd that he's shooting everything in sight becomes com- completely gets flipped around when the absurdity becomes, well, why isn't he shooting that bird? You yeah. know, this kid is a killing machine and is shooting everything he sees. Why would he shoot? The only, the only possible reason that he would not shoot this bird is that it must be it's you know, death. A, an omen of death, you know, yeah. you know a harbinger of death or a hallucination on my part is the only possible explanation. It's funny that he never thinks like, oh, maybe he's out of bullets. Maybe that's why I can jump up and feel safe, you know? Yeah. But he never thinks about that. But um, I guess he's shooting pine cones the whole time as well. Um, that that moment that moment where he, he he talks to the kid before being shot too reminds me, just, I'll just name a few things, two, a few great things that the story reminds me of that came afterward. Um, the end of the, uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find, the Flannery O'Connor. Uh that's where, one of my other favorites okay, where the grandmother sorry. no where the grandmother says to the misfit you know you're one of mine you're one of my own children right before he shoots her this moment of levity between them you know before like you know death comes i love that yeah. they, they have that, that kind of ending of a short story i was also reminded of um the best passage in hemingway's in our time you know that german describes... that german wouldn't have been a nazi if he had had a little boy to shoot him every day of his life that's probably true <laughs> it's probably a good point uh, in our time, uh, Hemingway's book, where um, he describes the uh, the German soldiers at the Battle of Mann who are coming over the wall and they're just picking them off one by one as they come over the wall and it just becomes a pile of soldiers because it's just literally shooting them like ducks in the gallery. And the, the line is, we shot them. They all came over that way. You know, they all came over like that. Uh, reminds me of that a lot. Or Sam Fuller's I Shot uh, Jesse James has that great scene where Bob Ford is uh, out in, you know, 
at night in the middle of the town and some guy starts shooting at him and he oh, goes to ducks yeah. behind they're shooting each other and then the guy, the guy suddenly shouts oh hold on hold on i'm out of ammo the fight's <laughs> over you know like this has just been some kind of game like it has that kind of absurdity and sort of childlike look towards violence and you know conflict of oh whoa, 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 now it's you know hey we're done I'm well, stop shooting now. there is something about it when you talk about the boy having a godlike quality that if all of the universe is encompassed in God, there's necessarily an innocence to even death and violence. You know, if it's the purity of God behind all that is, there's a necessary innocence and righteousness uh, uh, to to violence, you know, remove the righteousness, just like innocence and the way it should be you know, to exist beyond the sphere of judgment, that this is the natural order, you know, the way when a wolf kills a, a rabbit, whatever the fuck wolves eat. <laughs> I said that like I was going to be able to come up to it, you know, when a, when a polar bear kills a snake, it's the natural order of things, you know when what I mean? When a shark kills a gorilla. Exactly. <laughs> Anytime a horse knifes a coyote to death. <laughs> The natural order. But you know what I mean. Anytime a crocodile. That's eats a always personal. That Any, is always personal. Anytime a crocodile eats a marshmallow thrown by a fan boat tour guide, right? <laughs> Total natural order of things. Um, but there is like a natural order to to the boy's behavior. And I think that that's part of the 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 mysterious magic of it is making the kid not seem evil or even terrifying, really, that it has the quality of and it's not even like a game to him it just has a quality of this is the way it is this is eternal what he's doing is eternal and could be no other way that this is not a moral decision for him to do any of these things this is this is an inevitability when he has that thought of hey maybe i'll just travel the world shooting stuff you know like <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good that's just like a pretty good deal to me right just walk around shoot whatever moves that's going to be my life from now on uh, don't, don't shoot the squirrel. Don't even shoot a pheasant, John. I also love when he talks about picking up the dead squirrel and how the tufts of the hair come loose from its bushy tail, which if you've ever had to handle a dead squirrel, it's like, it is like that. That hair isn't attached to anything. It sort of comes out very easily. It's just, it's just such an incredibly palpable sense of this little universe. Again, he, it's, you know, he wrote Cosmic Comics. The, this story is like a, an entire universe in this valley here. It's an entire moral, poetic, metaphysical universe that he just builds so quickly. But to tie it back to Soldier more too, it does have the same remoteness to it. And I think one of the interesting things about Soldier, about that final section of Soldier, is that I don't think as the audience reading it, you feel the horror of war. I think you witness the military men's horror of it in the same way that I don't feel the horror of war reading Crow Comes Last. I think I witness the German soldiers' horror of it. And it somehow maneuvers me into the same remoteness in both stories that the boy has in both of them, that I'm, I'm watching them from afar. Yeah, well, Soldier has that line, it took a real soldier who hated war to talk of it to show people it was ugly and unglamorous, right? But I yeah. think anything that the military gets behind is going to be propaganda one way or another, even yeah. if it's an anti-war sentiment, you know? Yeah, yeah. It does, it just has such a strange 
feeling to it too. There, there, there's something strange about how Quarlo feels like the apple-faced mountaineer too. They both have a lack of, of passion and emotion and, 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 uh, and anything that you would call normal logic to their behavior. They both act with a kind of soldier's inevitability in some mm-hmm. way. You know, they, they act with an inevitability to their behaviors in a way that I think reflects off of each other in a funny way. Although we do learn that Guarlo is completely miserable by everything he has to be, but is just sort of submitted to it in some way. And I think that is the, the key distinction. Well, it's is funny. Guarlo is like the German soldier. But go on. Well, no, that's an interesting sort of, you know, kind of reverse, you know, uh, connection between the two is that one of them has all context. He only knows war. He only knows destruction and to go out and to kill. It's all that's in his head 24 seven. And the other one has no concept of it whatsoever. And it has nothing to do with him going out and shooting things. So they both have sort of a weird naivete in that way. And that one of them only knows destruction and only was bred to do terrible things for the sake of, you know, one massive global conflict while the other one just, just does them. (laughs) because that's just what he wants to go out and do he wants to walk the world with a rifle maybe with the dog with him i don't know then it could be more of a harlan nelson story a boy and his dog but it's also the way you phrase it of he just does it that's the essence of both of those characters too is there's almost Mm -hmm. no other option for their existence and that's one of the things i like in soldier when he is first transported back and put in jail you as an audience go well what the hell is his existence going to be now and then it jumps to the military people going, well, what the hell is this guy's existence now? He can't be, he doesn't deserve to be in prison. He, you know, didn't actually, you know, he technically committed a crime by killing that executive of laser beam, but he had also been transported through time and space and was confused, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the indifference too, when he first materializes at the subway station and the a uh, homeless guy has a heart attack when he sees him, you know, yeah. freaks out and dies right in front of him. And it says he has no reaction to it because death for him has just become something that's just all around you. So why would you, why would one random guy falling dead in front of you mean anything kind of, you know, connects with the, you know, the, the complete indifference of, uh, of our, our hero from the crow comes last. Yeah. It, and that he does maybe connect destruction to, you know, something that, is negative necessarily or it's there can be no other way for me and the moment the boy picks up the rifle it has a similar feeling of there can be no other way for me with it Mm -hmm. you know and and i do you know obviously the big contrast is is in ellison's book it's about we gotta end war and i do think that it's meant as an anti-war sentiment in that way you know i do think that calvino uh the if it's an anti-war sentiment and i'm not sure that it is i I think it's a little more complicated than that Uh, like when we talked about come and see on the podcast you know when you talk about world war ii it's very hard to make a world war ii movie because they invariably get you fired up to kill some nazi motherfuckers like you want to go to war even when Hmm. you watch come and see that's not a sad ending where you go oh no the kids perpetuating war you watch them join the group of partisans and you go they gotta go get 
these guys. They've got to go get these guys, you know, like you more war is the solution to the problem here. It is unambiguous and come and see that more war is the solution to the problems of that movie, that there is no other solution. And in fact, the, the, the groups within that movie that propose solutions apart from more war are getting crushed and strangled to death slowly and failing by half measures, you know? I think too, uh, again, going back to how soldier is, people are just looking at war in a different way, a fundamental way of, you know, this massive destruction that if you looked at war and saw, you know, on an even more horrific and giant scale than what you're used to, when you hear these, you know, weapons being used against humanity by humanity to such a, an extent that that's all anybody knows, it seems more horrific and you start saying, oh shit, you know what war is? Is it's people killing people. What are we even thinking about? In Crow Comes Last, again, it's the question of, you know, or not the question, but it, it just, it's pointing out to you that, and that German soldier that, what did you expect, buddy? You're in a war. You're going to get shot at by somebody. What is it? Why is it any more absurd that it's a kid with a rifle who's got you pinned behind a rock? You know, yeah. what, what, why, why are you surprised when you look up and see that crow coming for you, pal? Because that's what war is. It's, you know, you went there and you and your friends are going to be shot at and, and die, or you're going to shoot other people and kill them. But that's fundamentally what it is. And you shouldn't have any kind of, you know, pride in your heart, mask what, you know, the kind of basic function of war is. Yeah. Yeah. But I also think that with Calvino's story, it's, it's attempting to be poetically mysterious. And I think that to apply too hard of a grid of understanding to it diminishes its intentions or is in conflict with them. You know, but would you, but would you agree though, that it's looking at war and you know, it's, 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 it's recontextualizing war as a mysterious thing that, you know, it's yes. strange that people don't question more often. That just seems like, a, like, you know, we all are so used to it that, no one ever questions time to go shoot these people. I think it's, I think it's existence is completely mysterious and therefore any aspect of existence like war can potentially be extremely mysterious and that both the inevitable facts of it, as you're saying that people get killed and shot during war, even that's a mystery that there's a thing called war that you inevitably get shot during is, is extremely inscrutable to the the stories telling of it but in a way that's not don't think about it not in a way to shut down contemplation of it but a way to expand your contemplation of it and again i think that it's that relationship to to god and death and our our time being existent you know, that you can look at it as hard as you want, but you're going to come up with fanciful solutions like the crow comes last, you know, that before you die, the crow comes last, you're going to come up with these fanciful poetic solutions that also, but they're not absurd. There's something that's true about it. There's something that feels all of the very standard described stuff in the book, right? Or in, in the story feels impossible to understand. Hmm. Why is the boy doing this? Why is he going to war? Why is he able to shoot everything? What is happening? Feels unintelligibly, not unintelligibly, impossibly difficult to understand. And then when the guy 
has the crazy thought that the crow come, you see every bird before you die and then the crow comes last. That's the moment where the story suddenly feels true. It feels like the first truth you've been confronted with in the whole story. And I think that's its beautiful irony is these very pedestrian, seemingly mundane actions like shooting a mushroom on the ground take on metaphysically strange proportions. And then the metaphysically strange idea of a crow coming last suddenly seems small and human and truthful, you know? And I think that that's the big irony of it. I think that's the aesthetic irony of it. Yeah, no, when switches perspective to the soldier being shot, I mean, that's when it really finds, like you said, that truth, that that really kind of beautiful earnestness that I think, you know, the story ends on. It's like a lightning bolt. You go, aha, yes. And then you think <laughs> about it and you're like, what? Why did I just go that guy's absolutely right. That's so true. It's ludicrous. You know, it does. <laughs> right. it, 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 it has, it, it's like a lightning bolt of, of truth. That's completely bizarre. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. God, can you imagine being that good of a writer? Can you no. fucking imagine? <laughs> Sometimes I'll read. It's like when I watch a Mike Lee movie, I'll be like, how do other filmmakers watch this and not be like, fuck, I gotta give up. Not, I should give up, but I just gotta, I gotta stop. Look at this thing that he's done. I cannot do that. I got to stop. When I read Calvino, I'm like, <laughs> fuck, man. I am, there's, I'm not a writer. You it's know, funny. That's... It's funny to think about how Calvino, after he wrote this, had uh, like a decade of struggling, though, as a writer to really kind of d- determine like what kind of stuff he wanted to write. And it wasn't until he kind of came back to the idea of writing, you know, in a, way, in a, in a form of allegory and innocence, you know, and kind of like fairy tale ish. That he, you know, kind of found his stride again. For for a while, he was like, I think he, I think he was ex- he was expected to write a certain kind of book because he was in, you know, became part of the Communist Party, you know, being a partisan and everything like that. And once yeah. he realized, like, I should just write what I should write, what Calvino should write, you know, yeah. I should write, I should go back to the stories that I wrote and to the Crow Came Last, and that's the kind of thing I should be writing. But he's um, always very adventurous, you know, like if yeah, on yeah, Winter's yeah. Night, a traveler is one of the most insane books you will ever read yeah oh i mean he became such an original it's ridiculous i want to bring up just because we're talking about his wartime um do you know about his mother no i was going to say at the beginning of this episode when with the preamble was this is stuff we know really really well authors i really really love i have an incredible allergy to knowing anything about them and as i realized as we started talking i was like i know the most broad outlines about calvino but i've struggled really hard i don't want to know i just want to read the testament you know it's like <laughs> the the remedios vero quote is that you know i don't want my audience to know anything about me that that will be a failure if they're looking for me in my work rather than looking for the work in themselves i will respect that i won't tell you anything about his mother except that she was awesome i want to know about his mother (laughs) tell me about his mother it's not even that much it's that his mother was the one who convinced him to join uh the garibaldi brigades under the name santiago that was his battle name and uh because of that his parents were taken hostage by the nazis for an extended period yeah. And later he would just talk about how brave and, uh, you know, how firm she stood against them when they would do things like do a mock ex- execution. Uh, the, uh, the, the squad Risti, the black shirts yeah. would do mock executions of her husband in front of her. So they were going to blow his head off and she'd be like, yeah, go ahead. You know, like she <laughs> would just 
stand up to him and then you know later so a real uh, suit, like jordana kalman john crib situation exactly somebody's gonna blow your head off she'd be like yeah go for it except it's never a mock execution i always <laughs> get killed they really mean it um, I mean, you, you know i've had problems with the squadristi so i i do i know a little about it i i tend to think that's your problem not mine but um yeah no it is all it's 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 weird he, to me. He's an author that, and there's obviously some authors like who have so much autobiography in their work and have written so extensively like Milan Kundera that I know everything about him as a person, you know, and, and there's certainly playing or Louis Spoonwell. There's certainly artists, or Jean-Pierre Melville to just keep with world war II resistance heroes <laughs> um, that, that I certainly know a lot about, but for some reason with Calvino, I really felt like I don't want to know. I just want the stories. I don't want to know. You know, I, I think also because they are so mysterious and adventurous, you know, that that to keep that exploratory quality of you always feel like you are just going out on a walk at night with, with a guide that yeah. you don't know whether to trust or not. Yeah, I'd be with you on that, except that he's written so much great nonfiction as well. So many great letters and essays that all that stuff is worth reading too. So I haven't read much of it. That's great. I don't know it's, why. He's a great writer. So all that stuff is great. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I need to be, stop being less, uh, uh, stop being so uh, uh, dainty with them, being so uh, fussy about it. I need to just, to just go, go full force on everything. And certainly, you know, this is like you, I reread the, we came up with this idea like three days ago. I reread it like, you know, two or three times, yeah. just like when you pick it up and you go through it's so good and the other, the other war stories of his that are collected in difficult loves too um i'll tell you one thing and again this could be the translation more than him but he loves lichen on stones man it comes up two or three times in the stories that's like his favorite thing to point out yeah oh man there's so many good stories in here check out just read difficult loves difficult loves famously has different versions of it some that omit quite a few stories and some that add others in so you know it's like two completely different books yeah yeah just you know get a, get them and read them you you can't go wrong with them i don't think he has anything bad do you i've never read a bad calvino yeah no. i i think i feel like you can grab i mean pa I pass on the nest you know his first novel yeah it's it, it, you know it's it's, it's, juvenile, a, it's a first yeah. it's a first novel it's a yeah. first novel is what it is it's kind of a clumsy picaresque in a lot of ways but it has that uh one passage about the prisoners of war who were forced to dig their own graves that is just haunting it was there from the beginning but like once again once he kind of had that struggle you know trying to decide what he was going to write and then uh ended up writing the, the the cloven errant you know from there on out it's all great yeah i'm completely with it do you have any more you wanted to to talk about i'm sort of extremely pleased with how this episode came together i predict it will be our least popular episode of all time but i <laughs> i i know nothing's ever going to beat the ashtray by earl morris nothing is ever going to beat that for sheer audience indifference and that episode's fucking fantastic too <laughs> um but i, I really uh, you know this ended up this ended up working out okay for us didn't it this it's was a terrific, very, man. very enjoyable thing to do. I'm, I knew, I'm, I knew it would. I knew, you know, like I said, anytime we talk short stories, I always have a great time. It's always a lot of fun. And Let I'm me glad. just ask you, in yeah. when you, when you tackle a short story, I mean, what do you usually do? Do you usually go to collections? Do you ever like look up? I'm just going to like, you know, get online and find a short story or a magazine or anything. Like, how do you usually approach 
when you feel like reading a short story? Like, what's your forum for that? It it if I'm reading new a new one that I haven't read before, I'll get a collection and read just read like the whole collection. I have a tendency to read everything together in, in a collection. Yeah. If it's one I've read before, I'll grab the the story I, I want to read. I won't go back through even ones like Laughable Loves that I think are intended to be read on the whole, or or even Stanislaw Lim's A Perfect Vacuum that I think they want you to read the whole thing. I'll just read the one I want to read and not the whole thing. Yeah. You know? Do you have a feeling that, that writers, maybe I'm, I'm trying to think if it's always been this way or if it's a more modern thing, kind of tackle short story collections now almost like an album, like a musician would do an album. Like these are the, these are the 10 songs that are going to make this work. And you got to read the whole thing, you know, to kind of get the, the, the theme I was going for, or kind of like get the gist of what I, what I wanted you to know. I do. I do. I do think that a lot of short stories are, are sort of pressured into being um, pseudo novels now being sort of free form novels in some way. I, I do think there's a lot of pressure for that. I think for the reason we're talking about of short stories get short shrift, that the critical impulse doesn't have a way of keeping them in the same level of self-esteem. And in fact, it's interesting. We, I was talking with a couple people this week about Truffaut because I've been watching Les Mistons over and over and I love that movie. And Truffaut is a filmmaker who... Les Mistons and Antoine and Colette are his two best movies, I think, by a mile. And he's somebody who should have been a short filmmaker. I really think that was the format for him. I think that that's what fits him most perfectly. And he's constantly trying on styles that don't fit him quite right. He's constantly jumping around trying to find his voice as an artist, even though I think he's overtly a genius. It's it's always sort of this Hiscock pastiche that doesn't work, a return to the Antoine Duanel series, doing something pseudo-Godardian with Shoot the Piano Player, doing something that's more like a regular crowd-pleasing thriller with a woman next door, doing, doing like a historical drama like uh, Adele H. He's always jumping around, seeming to try and find himself. And I think when you watch the short films, he really does. But he can't be a short filmmaker. You can't be a famous working filmmaker if what you do is make short films. It's not an option for you. The, the critical financial cultural apparatus for it just doesn't exist. And I think the same thing happens with short stories where if you are a truly great short story writer, you, you it's not as bad as being a short filmmaker where no one is going to list somebody who only makes short films in the top 50 directors of all time. Maybe Buster Keaton. But. I agree with you hundred percent. And, and, but it is great to have like an occasional great short film, like the short and the curlies that you can watch and, you know, get as much out of it as a Mike Lee feature, you know, and in 17 short minutes or however long it is. You know me, I that. love short films probably more than I love feature films too, that that's much more, uh, my style. I like that kind of conciseness. I think that a lot of like narrative gets bad in feature film length. You know, I, 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 not necessarily at the time, obviously I love feature films too. I don't need to disparage them and make the case for shorts, but shorts are a very specific flavor and style and function and, and aesthetic, and they can do different things. And so I really, really love short films. Uh, and they do. They just get short shrift. They they mm -hmm. don't they don't get explored. They don't get critically 
uh, brought up as much. And exactly like you're saying, short and curlies is as good as Mike Lee gets, you know? Yeah. And and you won't sue it if some you somebody does. Here's a list of the Mike Lee films ranked from best to worst. You won't see short and curlies in like the top six, you know, that and it should be. If it's on there at all. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. There might be some like, and, you know, at number 18, all of his TV stuff you know kind yeah. of thing on those lists and i think you're right it's hard you know for writers to you know that they're pressured to do novels i think that's another thing that the reason that harlan elson stands out that he was able to not be pressured into doing novels beyond his early juvenile delinquent paperbacks you know that he could write short stories his entire career and still be as successful and famous as he ended up being yeah it's not 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 a common practice obviously <laughs> Although one of my favorite writers, Kelly Link, has just written her first novel. She's only been only done short stories yeah. up to this point. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah. And I do, you know, I also understand, like I was just, uh, just, this is like a year ago now, uh, rereading all of the complete Angela Carter short stories. Oh, and, so, and, yeah. and about half, yeah, they're great. But halfway through, I was like, could, could we get this a little more organized? You know, like, can we, this would, this might be a better experience if I was reading this as three short books that were maybe a little more coordinated by theme and ideas, you know? So you are right to just grab a short story sometimes is, is the way to go. And definitely, you know what, there's definitely people where you have to do it that way, where I've probably read everything Poe has written at this point, but I definitely have never sat and read like 10 Poe short stories and, uh, in a sitting or over the course of a week, you know, those, right, those things right. you pick up one at a time for sure. Yeah. I've tried to discipline myself to like, you know, read a short story every night. Like, you know, it's takes no time. You, as you're falling asleep, you can think about the short story and, you know, it's the perfect time to ruminate over what you've just read and think about the writer and what they were going for and, you know, their style of writing. It's just, you know, I, I have a tendency to lose track of time and stay up too late. So yeah. by the time I finally, you know, crawl into bed, like it's, you know, I'm definitely too tired to read anything. You know what I actually do frequently? Uh, and I don't know why this didn't first come to mind. Actually, when I was rereading the Angela Carter, I read like a couple collections at the same time. And I read one story from each like a day. So I was rereading Little Tales of Misogyny, Perfect Vacuum and, and uh, the Angela Carter stories. And I would read one from of them each a day. And I ran out of the first two, you know, Little Tales and Perfect Vacuum, and then was just doing the Angela Carter. And I think that's when I got the sense of like, this is too much. I need more organization here. That's I, nice to kind of give yourself that diversity, you know? Yeah. And I think it's a good way where it stops them from all bleeding together too. That something yeah. like uh, something like Patricia Hightsmith's Little Tales of Misogyny, those are great stories. They're all like two pages long. And if you read too many of them in a row, you there's no way to keep them straight. And But at the same time, you don't want to just read one two-page story a day. You know, that's not enough reading for, right. for a day's worth of reading at the same time. So I think that that juggling a few short story collections is a, is a good way to do it as well. Yeah, you can't just like, you know, fire off a Raymond Quinot and be like, okay, that's my story for the day. <laughs> uh, John, ha have a good night. Thanks for doing this with me. This was a lot of fun. It was. We should do short stories again soon. 
We should. In my I, opinion. I love every time we do a short story collection. It's always great. And we should we should do one like we did with the Ranpo, where we each picked a, a handful that we like by an author and and go through those. I think that's Let's a good format too. Cool. For sure. I got a crow buzzing over me, so I'm gonna get the fuck out of here. John, I'm gonna shoot you in the chest. <laughs> 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 <laughs>